I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, it's yet another film with a complex man-child, middle-aged, prepubescent girl, platonic-slash-latently sexual love affair movie. It's Leon the Professional, and I'm Matt Gorley, and this is I Was There Too. It's the show where I talk to people who are present in the great scenes of cinema history, and today's film was directed by Luc Besson, who, when he was working on his other film, La Femme Nikita, in 1990, created a character called Victor the Cleaner, played by Jean Renault, who is the lead in this film, and thought there might be more to tell of this character's story. It's a melodrama of the First Order that has a cartoon level of violence that is matched only by the <laughs> uh, extreme acting choices of Gary Oldman. Oh, boy. And also it's worth mentioning that there are a lot of vests in this movie, like regular vests, plaid vests, 90s knit vests, just a lot of vests. If you're going to watch this movie, prepare for a lot of vests. You know, put on a vest in sympathy or celebration. I'm wearing one. Vests. There's not a ton to say. My guest is Adam Bush, a friend of mine, a wonderful musician and actor. Let's connect him to last episode's vest. Guest. What? Diane Franklin from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves to Gary Oldman in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Gary Oldman to Adam Bush in Leon the Professional. Let's get this party started. The film, Leon the Professional. The year, 1994. The role, Manolo. The actor... Adam Bush. Adam Bush, welcome to I Was There Too. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I don't mind saying it. I have to tell you, uh, I'm watching your background scenes. You play Manolo in these important scenes where Leon is talking to his, essentially his boss, Tony, and 
you're you're we'll talk about what you are to Tony, but in in the background of these scenes, you're very intently either cooking or bringing something from a freezer, and there seems to be a look on your face like I can't tell if you're thinking, "Oh, this is just background work," but it doesn't seem like that. It seems like you are really acting, you're cooking, you're a young man. I'm thinking if I'm that young and I'm doing those things, I'm going to take it as seriously as possible. Two things are definitely at play there. One, I was most certainly taking it way too seriously <laughs> than was necessary. I had been going to Strasbourg for oh a couple my God. of years. So you're not kidding. No. And, and I want to say that I feel like that comes across in, in the best way, not in like, oh, this boy's taking his role too seriously. There's an intensity to your tomato chopping or whatever you're doing that reads. I remember the first day, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, thinking that because they explained to you in class that you have to do this long you know, kind of relaxation with your body before you can ever act. So I remember the first day showing up on set, sitting there in the Italian restaurant in a seat and just relaxing my body and making long, loud sounds, thinking I'm an actor, this is what we do. And people were looking at me <laughs> like not just the least important person on the set here is kind of swaying around and making room, but to what end? What does he think he's going to achieve by this? And I remember Luc Besson coming over and asking me if I was all right. <laughs> and I took that as a clue that maybe what I'm doing isn't being appreciated and maybe not even necessary for this scene, that kind of method prep. Wait, God, you're coming from Strasbourg School, who is just the pinnacle of taking things seriously. I mean, my God. Is that how do you describe it? If you were knee deep in the trenches with Strasbourg, a lot of people think there's like the, you know, the Stanislavski method that's a little bit more well-rounded. And then there's the Strasbourg version that everybody dives into and forgets who they are. Is that is that wrong as well? I don't think it's wrong. I think it's right, and I think it's <laughs> nice to have a set of tools that you can rely on. There's a couple truths that seem to work in any medium. Emotion can't get through a tense muscle. Uh huh. Um, sensory work in terms of trying to cry will never work. But if you can concentrate on something that happened to you and just focus on something, the the just concentrate on feeling the sunlight the day that horrible thing happened. Don't think about that horrible thing that happened. It won't work. But if you just relax your body and focus on feeling the sunlight, something will happen. And between you and me, even if it doesn't, it's just nice to have something to do. So were you in any way going full method while playing Manolo in this scene? Or I'm embarrassed to say in yes. From what I was doing. I'm glad to hear you say that. If just if just not for this podcast, the stories. It's it, this is almost not fair because <laughs> I mean this was such a big moment in my life. It was the first film I'd ever worked on. I had had an unhealthy obsession with New York character actors and felt like this was very much a welcome into that world. And it, I'm not in this movie. I went back to watch it, and it was such a big moment in my life. I couldn't believe what a small contribution it was when you see the film. Like, compared to uh, Paul F. Tompkins in There Will Be Blood, that's a star turn he does. That is a movie, in fact, about a man just trying to get a bunch of oil people together to get along. I don't know. I might differ with you a little bit because when you told me you were in this film, I remember Tony, I remember Daniello's character, and I remember him having someone he kind of talk to i i think of you as a very sweet version of spider from goodfellas you know as manolo in this do you remember him i do michael imperioli is like the little i don't know he's the he's the boy making his way up in the mafia but first of all do you think manolo is is trying to get ahead in the business or just wants to be a restaurateur <laughs> well this is the problem this was my problem is that uh luke Besson, the director 
went out of his way to encourage this kind of thinking. And he pulled me aside the first day and he said, so you're a troubled kid. You got trouble with drugs early on. You left your family. You're out on the street. This guy, Tony, took you in. He works in an Italian restaurant. You work for him. You learn to trust him. You learn to love him. Over years, he learns to trust you. He gives you more and more responsibility. You don't know or care what that responsibility is. You're just happy for the job. And here we are. You're Tony's so, Matilda, really. He should understand more than anyone. It's a, it, Which I think you can get when you see the film. There's no way you can get and that. And then why is Luc Besson giving you trouble for doing acting exercises if he's giving you all this background? No, I think he would support it if it was done right. But you're not <laughs> supposed to do that in front of everybody when you show up to set like an asshole. You're supposed to, you know, your process is your own and be private about it. I was definitely making a big show and thought I would get great points for it. Okay, so it wasn't just for your work. It was more of like, I know what I'm doing. To exactly. Okay. Now, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get this role? What was your audition process like? They just... I'd been doing commercials and going to class up until that point, and I got called in to meet with the director, and we just talked. He asked me a lot of questions. I remember he wore jean shorts and a black t-shirt. As you do, and when you want to be taken seriously. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing or what I'm wearing about. it right now, and thanks for not mentioning it. I can see the little cuffs that he had, those little turned over... Right by the... Yeah. He's French. I mean, you you get a certain allowance by being French, right? Not for that. No. Not for that. That's a fair point. So did you talk about the role? You talked about yourself? No. No. He asked me about me. I really don't remember what we talked about or what we said. I can remember the waiting room and the office and the camera and him behind it. I don't remember what we said. And did you get the role based on that or did you have to go back? That was it. Did you... You never read for it? No. Really? Yeah. Luckily, there were no lines, so it wasn't much of a problem. Good point. Good point. Now, what's he like as a man and a director? I mean, he makes some interesting films, and I'm dying to know what that guy is like. I think anybody who pulls a non-speaking character aside and makes them feel like they're the star of the movie is knows what he's doing uh-huh. and knows how to make people feel appreciated. He definitely has a big sense of humor. Really? Yeah. There's definitely nothing is ever too serious. Yeah, you can tell. I mean, there's a definite heightened sense to this film. The other thing that's interesting, too, is even in the, I don't know if it's the production design or even more so in the costumes, this is supposed to be a film about New York and New Yorkers, but there's just a real Euro style running through the whole thing. Even uh, Matilda's dad just sort of has this Euro feel to him and is... How much is he involved in the costumes and that sort of thing? I, I feel like his stamp is all over it. Yeah, having rewatched it, it's all so specific. And every, you know, henchman or SWAT team member has a very unique face. Yeah. And seems like they're somebody you're going to follow. Yeah. And feels memorable. I remember in that opening scene, they're all in purple suits. Yeah. And they bust in there. Purple suits. They've Yeah, it, it feels like Die Hard meets GQ or something with those terrorists or something. Yeah. Anytime anybody has the chance to say something off camera or anytime you can tell there's, you know, just talk to this customer and then we'll... It's sexualized. He makes it a guy hitting on a girl. Even if it's the security guard at the DA's office and he's, you know, all right, girls, we'll see you next weekend. Why did he say that? The cop um, guarding the apartment... He's letting some girl try on his cap. He's hitting on her. There is, I mean, obviously there's a sexual undercurrent running here to the point that you could make the case that it goes too far. But the thing that probably rescues this movie is Jean Renault's performance and making himself a little slow. So you feel that things are platonic between he and Matilda. But in my research, I found out that 
the girl in the very beginning when they come to shoot that guy in that apartment was Luc Besson's fiance or girlfriend at the time, and she was underage when they met. And so I don't know how much of the story is fantastical autobiography or what, but did you know that? I remember there was a girl who also wore jean shorts <laughs> and had ponytails and wore a white t-shirt and looked very much like Jane March. And I remember even at 13, I knew Jane March was beautiful uh-huh. and she would hang around with him a lot. I do remember seeing that just because I noticed there was a parallel between them two and Leon and Matilda. Yeah. And then sometimes during lunch, like, Natalie would sit on, I can call her Natalie since we've never met since then. Yes. I remember Nat. her sitting on his lap for a while during lunch. R- really? Yeah. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. That's the second sitting on a lap story on here that's made me slightly uncomfortable with uh, Doug Benson and Michael Jackson. Doug wasn't sitting on Michael Jackson's lap, but he was talking about how after, in between takes of Captain EO, Michael Jackson would go back to his director's chair and he just had his little friends on set that would kind of whisper and tickle and stuff like that. Well, we've gotten off to a good start, haven't we? I'm glad I wasn't Michael Jackson on Doug's lap. <laughs> so you get the part. Yeah. How thrilled are you? I mean, you got to be... How thrilled am I? It's yeah. the greatest day of my life. It's yes. Everything I it, everything was going exactly how I suspected <laughs> up until that point. <laughs> Had you seen any of Lupuson's prior films? What was their... La I did. Nikita I and... La Femme Nikita. Yeah. And I was a big fan, big fan of Gary Oldman from yes. Sid and Nancy. Yeah. So that was very exciting to me. Yeah. I have so much to say about Gary Oldman. I feel like he needs to be studied in a lab for so many reasons. In this film alone, his acting is like a circus. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but when he comes in and he shakes a little pillbox, I always say that that's when he takes his acting pills. Because the second he takes those pills, he just gets so histrionic in a way that there was a time where I couldn't take it. But now I watch it and I'm in 100% because it feels like... Everything's intentionally heightened in this movie. And I don't mm-hmm. think I, when I first saw this, I really liked it. And then later I saw it and I went, this is ridiculous. But I don't think I got that they knew they were doing that, you know? And that was on me. And now it's just like nuts. His acting performance is matched only by the level of cartoon violence in the film. It's incredible. So what was it like? Did you get to interact with Gary Oldman much? Our interaction consisted of me turning around almost kind of bumping into him and him going, oh, oh hi, I'm Gary. And me saying, I know. <laughs> that was pretty much it. How old were you? 13. 13? Yeah. You're just a little guy. The I'm p- a the- man in the eyes of God. So were you in hi- high school or junior high? You were in junior high? Mm-hmm. And what was the school must have been a buzz when you come back and you're in this film? No, I managed to find a way to be a child actor working in school on Long Island and make it not cool. How? Because now that they were picking on me before, now there was a reason. What? Um, yeah, I had done Nickelodeon and stuff like that, and I really did think just like you, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to come home a hero. And no, it was like, we picked on you before, and now you're asking for it. That's surprising. Yeah. You ever feel like you go back for revenge like Leon and just Sometimes. take those? Yeah. What do you think happens to Manolo? Wow, that's a great question. I think Did he you was think killed he, in the you, birthday party scene. Okay, that's yeah. what I was told. Yeah. And oh, I believe really? that. Mm-hmm. Who told you that? Luke Besson? Mm-hmm. All those kids die? All those kids die. I think he's so cartoonish because it's just supposed to be pure evil. Yeah. Without any... Yeah. You know. It's melodrama, but in, in done well. 
Yes. Right? I I think it's really sentimental rewatching it yeah. last night. I mean, granted, I have a lot of my own things going on, but I couldn't stop crying. Every time she cried, I cried. Oh, I know. I'm, I got a hard time every time when she's like, please open the door. Please open the door. I have a real tough time with that. And then when anybody does anything like really nice, just a nice gesture, I have, I have a tough time with that. She's 11 when she does this movie, I think, when she was cast. And uh, I'll post this on the episode page but her audition is on youtube oh really and it's almost it's strange because it's almost more adult like there's a dakota fanning feel to her where she's just sort of talking through it a little disconnected and somehow in the direction he got her to be a little bit more vulnerable and you can see the difference it's still amazing that even the audition is amazing because she's also looking down to read and looking back up and her facility with words and emotions is crazy for an 11 year old that's nuts. I was worried about what I was going to watch on TV, you know. Mm-hmm. And genuinely worried. Yeah. <laughs> Full of fear. I'm still worried. I just remember knowing she was from Long Island and I was from Long Island. That's right. Now, you're 13 at the time. Did mm-hmm. you meet her? There. I hadn't met her before then. Yeah. And she was very funny. Really? I remember her do, always doing funny voices and talking like a yenta and being very flirtatious and very full of life. All right. So let's let's talk about your first day on the job. How many days? Do you remember how many days you were? It was almost two weeks oh that we God. were at. Um, it was the Supreme Macaroni Restaurant on 9th Avenue, Midtown, which isn't there anymore. Supreme Macaroni? That sounds Correct. amazing. And I'm so excited. I finally have a place to say this to somebody who will actually care. Yeah. Because nobody else cares but me, it seems. Um, that's the restaurant that's in the back cover of Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, the Billy Joel record. Okay, I'm going to put that picture up on the episode page as well. There's Listeners, you're going to have a companion piece. This will be multimedia mm. for this. Plus, can I post the picture that you sent me of you with Danny Aiello? Yeah, you can. Okay. You know, this is gonna, you're going to have a fun little extracurricular activity, listener. So you show up and... Are these long days? Um... Yeah, you're there all day. I had, um, you know, the tiniest dressing room that you can give someone that little kind of honey wagon slip thing. But you which... had a dressing room. Manolo had a dressing room. I was so excited. And it wasn't even having a dressing room. It's just having a dressing room on Ninth Avenue <laughs> is so much fun. You just feel like it's your own little phone booth where you get to become a superhero <laughs> right off the street. And I remember that Natalie Portman had the same size one and so did Jean Reno which even back then so he's in every scene that's really tough you can't extend your legs fully really in those dressing rooms you can't sit and put your legs up or you'll hit the wall uh-huh. and he was always um strapped to had a lot of guns and yeah. suspenders yeah. on him and he would bust out of that door all the time he was always finger gunning that was this thing you with the guns or just with no his fingers? Fingers. With fingers to anyone and everyone always you'd see him and you'd just go and you'd do it back that that was his thing that man strikes me as one of the most affable men that could ever be. Was he like that in person? Yeah, he was just a kid playing bang bang oh with his fingers. God. I love him. Running around. And I remember, um, I don't know why I cared at that age, that Danny Aiello had one of those big star wagons and Gary Oldman had the same one. Uh-huh. And then we were all in those. So even Jean Renault didn't have a. No, wagon? no. And not even ego in any way. Like, yeah. it's a physically draining role. And you yeah. should be able to stretch your legs after a thing like that. But they would, it was very French. They would serve champagne at a certain time during the day. They'd walk around with, and me not having been on a film set, I assumed that's what it was like. <laughs> that they take breaks. Do you remember your next job after this? Oh my God. I don't, I think it was a Nickelodeon show. I think that's what so I did. very different. 
No, the same way. <laughs> well, but the problem <laughs> just was... just passing out champagne to kids. No, but I would then go to Orlando and sit there in the chair doing the same method <laughs> prep, having people stare at me going, you know, this is a sitcom. I don't know if, you know, bully on you, but please. Well, we'll see who wins the daytime, Emmy. That's right. Yeah. All right. So did you guys shoot in any kind of chronological order or are you just hopping around? Because all of your scenes are at this macaroni restaurant. Right? Yeah. That's funny. I hadn't thought of that. I th- it feels like we did. I remember it that way. Mm-hmm. I remember because I remember the first day being the first scene I did with them. Um, that when he gave me that whole background story, which uh-huh. I went with, which he also did. It was me and Tommy Ford, who's the older gentleman with the fedora, looks kind of like a mafia boss. Oh, that king, just sits in the restaurant. Who just yeah. sits there. Yeah, he was at the time a legendary New York character guy because he, De Niro fell in love with him. <laughs> and just started putting him in everything, a Bronx Tale, Boxer, Night in the City, as the stenographer, the press guy. And then, and I, I don't know why, and I tried to look it up, but now there's another actor named Tommy Ford, so it's harder to find oh, info wow. on Tommy A. Ford. Uh-huh. But De Niro would go on The Tonight Show and say, you got to see Night in the City. It's got Tommy Ford. You're going to love him. He was was it an inside joker. It was just cool to have this guy in your film. At some I think point? he just was um, new, cool New York characters, yeah, and just giving them their due respect. Luke Besson had given him the same. So you're a mafia boss, and, you know, whole background story. I think the only difference between Tommy and I was I knew he was just telling me that, so I would have something to think about. And Tommy thought, oh, this is a movie about me. <laughs> So there's a scene where I think I pass a cookie to him <laughs> and walk by, and they make it clear, you know, walk by. Please don't, you know, make... And he would, with his legs crossed, you know, every time I'd pass the cookie down, oh, thank you for the cookie, and just start talking while the camera's moving past him, and they try and explain to him, please don't talk. And in his mind, he's like, but the director just told me this is a film about me. I have it on more authority than uh-huh, you do. So please, me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And <laughs> if you look, what they ended up having him do is, why don't you just be asleep? <laughs> so that's what he does. He's, not He's just sleeping, and I, they bring the cookie by. <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break and then come back and talk about more of your experience in Danny and Today's episode of I Was There Too is brought to you by nobody. There's no ad. I've probably alienated every sponsor. (laughs) Back to the show. All right, we're back, and in the break, we talked a little bit about the charged sexual atmosphere on the set. Surrounding me at all times. That's right, and in this room. By the way, we're recording here in my office at my home. And uh, this is, if there's a different reverberant sound, it's not just the physical surroundings. It's the sexually charged atmosphere. And the grotto and the way the sound <coughs> hits off it. Sex verb, which can be a verb or a noun. Mm-hmm. Sex? Yeah. Boy, it's all full circle. So just to clarify something we talked about before, according to actress Maywen Labesco, part of the film is based on her romantic relationship with director Luke Besson. Labesco, who plays the blonde prostitute in the opening scene, was engaged to the writer-director at the time the film was made, Labesco had met Bassan when she was 11, which is the age Natalie Portman was, and had fallen in love with him when she was 15. Bassan was 32 at the time. So you were saying that you kind of felt that there was just this air of, um, how would you describe it? Looking back at the film, I was not aware of a lot of the sexualized elements that were happening. Yeah. I just didn't understand. I it's amazing it was... how much you can realize in hindsight. 
Uh-huh. And in connecting the dots of a lot of the jobs I've done, either at that time or not, it makes me go, wow, there always was a kind of sexual component to a lot of the gigs I do, even if I'm unaware. <laughs> and not knowing what a film set is like, and assuming they're all pretty sexy, <laughs> that that was an atmosphere there. There was definitely like an awareness. And maybe that's just being French. I don't know. Or maybe it's just right. me being Jewish, being paranoid about things. <laughs> but you definitely felt that that was... And it bleeds into the film, I think. And sure. I was definitely a, you know hypercharged 13-year-old kid ready to go. And I'm sure there's a degree of that that he felt that, you know, he responded to to some degree because uh -huh. I know it was happening. And it's, I can look back now, and I do often, at times, oh, my God, that girl was hitting on me. Oh, I had yeah. no idea. Oh, if I Not had... even there, just in class, anywhere. Like, yeah. oh, she was, and I was way too busy thinking about sports. Talking about that that charged sexual atmosphere, it's definitely present in the movie because obviously there's, a, I mean, a romantic connection between Leon and Matilda. Now, whether that's platonic and not physical, there's obviously a, a paternal love, but there's also something else going on there. And apparently when they first screened this in America, they had to cut at least one scene, but a good chunk of the film because it made people uncomfortable enough that it wouldn't work. And then... They do ride the line pretty well. I mean, you're very aware that there's a, some kind of attraction between these two people and how you aren't grossed out by this movie, maybe some people are, I don't know, is a testament, I think, to the movie. What are your thoughts watching it again on that? Is it too far? Is it subtle enough? Or? I think it's really benign. I think it was really smart and brave for him to recognize that this they're both completely and totally isolated. And even the slightest gesture of kindness when you're that desperate is all-encompassing you can't say it's not sexual and also paternal and also any emotion you can have i mean when he says yeah get me a gallon of milk it's the greatest day in her life she is <laughs> skipping she's oh. on air and you can't deny her that closeness and that warmness and her inability to say where it's supposed to be expressed and how. And as you pointed out, for both of them, for him too, because they're both, I think to leave that out would have uh, ruined everything a bit. And to do too much of it would have been exploitive. And it really does ride that line, especially because, as we were saying, everyone is hitting on everyone at all times in that movie. If there is a chance for sexuality, they find it. And I don't think it hurts in any way. I think it only helps kind of soften the campiness and some of the high stakes that are happening. Yeah, it's a weird mix of a complicated relationship between two people in a movie that is all black and white otherwise. You know, uh -huh. in tone, in villains versus good guys, even though our good guy is a killer. But still, it 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 is like a... It leaves you with a different feeling than obviously most movies do. And that's what I think kind of is its legacy, maybe. I don't know. Um, the other thing, too, is that they had a scene where Natalie Portman basically came on to him and wanted him to be her physical lover. And have you ever heard about the alternate ending for this thing that was originally in the script? Oh, the musical? The dance number? No, wait. I haven't heard of that. I don't know. See, the fact that you could say that, and I would believe it, is saying something about this film. Like, I, that wouldn't be too far out of line for it. No, they have way. left a little bit of room there <laughs> to pull like, that off. Like, as he's dying, if well, he goes into a musical fantasy. Which was the big surprise to me, if I may, because I did not know who Bjork was when I was 13. Oh, I didn't either. So that was funny to hear that song. Yeah. I did recognize Sting 
then. But now the shape of my heart being so specific to that exact year is is one of the more dated moments. Before I even get back to the other thing I was about to say, Eric Serra, who's the composer of the film, wrote a song for the ending called The Experience of Love. And they took it out for the Sting song, but then he later used it in his score for James Bond's GoldenEye. And it's so out of place at the end of that movie. It makes no sense. And he just recycled it. I want to hear that. Okay, yeah, we'll play it at because the end of Because to me, the most dated thing in the entire film is the pan flute synth <laughs> score, reminiscent of Karate Kid. They're coming two. back around. Yeah, yeah it's very... Around. So the original ending was, in the in the script, was... Leon gets killed, and he doesn't pull that grenade stunt on Stansfield, but she does. She walks up to him and has pulled the pins and kills both of them, herself included, and they thought it was just way too dark. I can see why maybe yeah. people would have that reaction. <laughs> I can see that. I do like the ending the way it is. I do, too. It's good, and it fits. It really fits. Uh, so Danny Aiello, uh-huh. what was he like? So you were working with him most closely. He was a very big personality. He loved to hold court on Ninth Avenue. He would take his chair and just put it right out on the street. And people would come over and start talking and a little crowd would form. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the entire world. And All I that makes so much sense to me. And just any story he would say, yeah. I would just eat it up. And we both could do the all the stops on the Long Island Railroad. Oh, so really? Turned it into a song. Merrick, Primark, Belmont, Wanta, Rockville Center, Massapequa, Massapequa Park, Avenueville, Copeg, Lindenhurst, Babylon, Change Jamaica for the Train to Penn. I think he used to work on the LIR, and we would do that, and he liked that I could do that. Oh, my. That's like Route 66. You have your East Coast version of... Yeah, for Long Island people. Yeah, or that Johnny Cash song. Um, I remember him holding court, and I um, was sitting at his feet, a bunch of people, and Luke Besson came by. And he said, now, I remember it verbatim, and I had no idea how it was perceived back then. I know now. And he said, hey, hey, Luke, Luke, did I, did I tell you about the dream I had last night? I had a dream that uh, everyone went to see this movie, and it was just two people talking in an Italian restaurant for two hours, and they all got bored and left. <laughs> I don't know why he was, or what his point was. Maybe because all of his scenes are pretty much just yeah, him he... sitting in an Italian restaurant and talking. But maybe he hadn't read the rest of the script. He must not have. But yeah, I remember or was him that saying... his passive aggressive way of saying he wants more action or something. Um, he doesn't smoke, and if you look, they edit around it. There's a couple moments where he lights a lighter and seems very uncomfortable with it. Uh, uh, and he would uh, brush his teeth in between every take. It's New York, so your trailer's like around the block, and we would wait in between every take as he went back to brush his teeth and came back. I remember pointing out that there was a a sink in the kitchen and I was told not to bring it up again. So I didn't. Wow. Uh huh. Of course Manolo would know there was a sink. He's back there. It's where I'm spending most of my time. Tomatoes do it. Method acting dishwashing. <laughs> I actually did look, I, this is so embarrassing. I thought That's maybe I should spend for. a week as a waiter. You did the visit the asylum and interview prisoners <laughs> thing. Where did you, where did you do this? At the East middle little league snack shop. I served drinks and, uh, at the East Middle, what, what was East Middle Little League snack shop. That's where I learned that what you're charging people for is not the Coca Cola from the fountain. That's less than a penny, but the cup is like oh, a quarter. I thought you were going to say the service, like you were, well, you were giving it to them in such a way that they would come back to. No, I was bad little... at that too. I didn't really? excel in any way. <laughs> but what what I 
think is just adorable that I didn't know that these were options. I thought this is what you had to do. I thought this is how it went. And I'm glad I have that stuff to rely on. But I didn't know you could just be cool about it yeah. for a long time. <laughs> or that people kind of even, you know, don't show your work. Just give us the number. But you got a little extra cash, presumably. Or were you volunteering at the Little League snack shop? No, I made a little bread. Yeah. Good. I made a little bread. Yeah. I'm sure I spent it on penny whistles and <laughs> moon pies and uh, that hoop where you, you hit this, the hoop with the stick. I remember there was a day that they had six or seven cop cars pulling up. And there was an actual robbery in the building next door. And six real cop cars showed up. And apparently it was a real farce of just not knowing who was real and what was happening and everyone yelling at each other. What, is this the same story? Because there's one story when I think they're shooting the big scene at the end with all the cops that some guy robbed something and that's then came it. out and surrendered to the movie cops. That's that it. That's amazing. I just remember Luc Besson saying that and constantly remarking about I mean, it didn't seem like it was tough, but just how how many elements it took to shoot in New York. Like, wow, <laughs> this is a whole thing. How did you get started acting, by the way? And at what age? I was really obsessed with old-time radio and that comedians. Makes sense. Yeah, because I know you from our work in the Thrilling Adventure mm -hmm. together. Yeah. So I, I wanted to be a stand-up. Uh -huh. And I put together a little act about my chorus teacher I didn't like. And I hit the library circuit. And Wait, you hit the Well, I wasn't allowed in clubs. So, how is that? Are you doing shows at the library? Uh, they just... had a talent show. Uh... And I, I performed in it, and it went well, and they asked me to do some others, man. It was a very is important this... time in a boy's life. What, like afternoon talent show or nighttime, like library uh, after dark? Or in early evening. Early evening, a five or six show. Um, they had some kind of talent show and I did it and that resulted in performing this act in other libraries and that led to, um, other libraries, <laughs> to the library circuit in the humor section oh, up the cat skills. Uh huh. But the, I'm sure my act was very cat skills. I'm sure it was just adorable in the worst way you can use that word. If there's a negative way to use the word cute. Remember Woody Allen looks back in some documentary on him and he says he can't watch his stand-up. He goes, oh, I just thought I was too cute. Uh, but that led to uh, an audition for a Broadway show. Um, how does doing comedy in libraries, yeah. someone was just there checking out a book like a casting person? Hey, kid, I was just in the periodicals and I couldn't help but notice in your sensational act. No, it was an open call. Like someone saw me and suggested... Oh, someone okay. to my parents or to someone right. I should go to this open call for Herb Gardner's conversations with my father oh my god with Judd Hirsch to play his son and I had never been to oh god this is so embarrassing I wore oh I thought all I knew was they said like you know New York street kid and I wore uh, what, are, what are they called suspenders yeah but the jeans with the Overalls? Overalls with one with one down. Like a Bowery boy, like oh yeah. Like a little English cap with Ooh. one down. I was just oh God. a little rascal basically. Uh -huh. uh, but mixed with like crisscross who at the time were probably popular. Oh like a God. mix of hip hop and just embarrassing. I'd never worn that before or after, but somehow I told myself that was the thing to do. And I got a call back. I didn't get the part. They gave it to David Crumholtz. Oh, wow. And uh, that casting director brought me in 
for the to meet Lucas on for the professional. It was that quick. Um, I mean that that's three steps to get in a movie. That's and the the movie being the third step. That's pretty good. It's not that. It wasn't that fast. There's lots of dead time in between. But they're connected. Those three things. Sure, and but so was Strauss. No, no, no. Yeah, so was going there, and I was doing some commercials in between there. I think before the professional, I had done a uh, a Zit commercial, a Ford commercial, and an ESPN two commercial oh where I played the Mop Boy. I'm trying to remember when Strasburg died. Did you ever work with him personally? He was, no, he was dead. Anna Strasburg was there. Oh, and she was a big presence, and we got to take a master class with Pacino. Whoa. That had a big impact. How was that? Um, I was 16 by that point. And Just the, so you know, in grad school, I got to take a master class with Ben Vereen. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I wish we could switch, but he's so good as the leading player in Pippin. He's so good. Leave your cheese to sour, man. Ah, oh, join us. <laughs> the fields, uh, the field of flower. Join us. Doodly do. Thank God we can edit. That to the front? Yes, thank you. <laughs> He's really great in Top 5. I like that scene in Top 5. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Ben Vereen no, makes No, I'm joking. Cameo. I think Ben Vereen is great. Uh, but but Pacino. He, the, the girl I was dating at the time, Jessica Underwood, whose dad was an NYU professor, so in my eyes, just like royalty, yeah. asked um, Al Pacino why um, he cast this certain woman in this certain project, and he responded, where were you? To her, upon which I could not believe he was hitting on her in front of me yeah. while I'm sitting there. Good for him, though. Yeah. Good for him. Okay, so did you get to go to any kind of screening, a premiere of The Professional? No. Nothing. It was over. Yep. They were done with you. That quick? Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, it was, it was about two weeks. We filmed a lot more than they used. There was lots of weird interplay and stuff going on in the background. All of it you knew was meaningless. None of it was plot driving the plot any uh-huh. farther. It spoiled me for any other film experience because I um, have a friend whose first film as a child was Soderbergh. And uh-huh. he does the same thing. It's just He's an amazing filmmaker who knows what he wants, casts well. You can't really make a mistake because he's cast so well. You're going to exist in your world and it's going to work. Uh-huh. makes you feel like you're the most important. And you walk away going, filmmaking is the greatest thing in the world. It's nothing but working with like upstanding, artistic people that know what they want and have a healthy head on their sexuality and their power and let egos go. And we all drink champagne every day. And... This is just going to, and then the next job you have, you realize, oh my God, that was unique. That was them. And he was a really great guy and he knew what he wanted and he cast well. And I was really lucky. And everything else since then has just been shit. Really? So even like working on Buffy and stuff, there must have been some that rose to that level, at least match it, right? Or have you felt like that you were really spoiled? In in terms of... um fulfilling somebody's vision yeah. absolutely you know there are moments on other things where you feel like that's happening and you're very excited to be a part of it yeah but on a whole looking back and seeing the degree to which i was used it's nice when somebody knows what they're doing yeah and i did a lot of probably really embarrassing things that in his mind were just perfect just keep being you don't even worry <laughs> about it and it's gonna be fine i don't know Let's talk a little bit about the Common Rotation, your band, which I'm a fan of. And people on here, by sheer nature of this podcast, may think of you as just an actor, but you're a very talented musician, 
songwriter. You perform at the band Common Rotation. You tour as well with um, Dan Byrne, right? Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about the music a little bit, too. I don't really... Um, don't see what that has to do with the professional. I understand. Um, well, first of all, it could have used you in the score a little bit. That really dates it. it How's really, how are your pan flutes going? <laughs> I've not been working on it, but my synth pan flute is consistent. <laughs> you know, we're going to end this episode with a little taste of the experience of love by Eric Serra, but then the big treat is we'll play a little common rotation as well. I'm a huge fan. I'm a big fan of yours. I can't thank you enough for uh, doing this with me. This is so much fun. Thank you for letting me take this trip down in Amnesia Lane. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. I was there, tune. That's the stuff. Well, as promised, I said we'd take a little listen to Eric Serra's The Experience of Love. Now, this isn't a song for the faint of heart or ears. Um, It's an interesting song because, as I mentioned in the interview, this was originally intended for the end credits of Leon the Professional, but got replaced by Sting's The Shape of My Heart. So you go from The Experience of Love to The Shape of the Heart. One is an abstract concept, one is quite literal, and you just had to make a choice. But again, like I mentioned, this song, The Experience of Love, and just, you know, take a second to let this sink in. That's nice stuff. Lyrics like, take it below, feel the flow, breathing in the scent of love. Appropriate for a man-child relationship. I'm just kidding, Eric Sarah. The French do things differently, and they do it well. But this song ended up on the credits of the James Bond film Goldeneye. Now, Eric Sarah scored Goldeneye, and he's probably done the most controversial James Bond score to date because he went a little more avant-garde. His score didn't include the famous James Bond theme. And so the producers later hired John Altman to provide the music for the tank chase in GoldenEye. Get a little bit more of that James Bond feel. Even when the Bond theme was in there, it was done in these kind of like Euro-Electro-Timpani drum thing. But that's not the only controversy to hit the James Bond musical scene. It began with a controversy itself. Because Monty Norman was the composer for the first ever James Bond film, Dr. No. And he, after much legal scrutiny, is credited with writing the James Bond theme. However, John Barry, who's known as the quintessential James Bond composer, was the one that orchestrated it into the way you know it today. Because interestingly enough, Monty Norman's melody for the James Bond theme as you know it today was originally written for a stage musical called A House for Mr. Biswas. And it is barely recognizable, but if you listen closely, you can hear it in there. This is the song from that musical called Good Sign, Bad Sign. And it is the origin of the James Bond theme. Take a listen. Unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. 
pundits all agree that I'm the reason why my father fell into the village pond and drowned. Now, I love the original James Bond theme. Who doesn't? But I, I dig that, man. That's got a real Eastern feel to it. Look, most of you, I don't even have to tell you the, my undying love for the James Bond franchise. And what John Barry did for that is absolutely amazing. We'll end with that. But it wouldn't have existed without that strange sitar-enhanced melody. Oh, bless you. I don't know what this song is about, but it has something to do with a sneeze. So, John Barry... Do what you do and take us out of this segment. I was there too. Well, as we wrap up this, the latest episode of I Was There Too, let me again thank Adam Bush, and let's listen to a little bit of his band, Common Rotation, while I tell you about some of the shows they have coming up. They'll be with Martin Starr July 1st at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, with Dan Byrne May 22nd in Santa Cruz, California, May 23rd, my birthday, at the Strawberry Festival in Grass Valley, California, as well as May 24th, not my birthday, don't anybody celebrate a goddamn thing. And Adam himself will be in a couple of movies coming out this summer. Happy Baby, the film adaptation of the Stephen Elliott novel. And a movie called Urge with none other than Goldeneye himself, Piers Brosnan, Full Circle. We've done it. I'm Matt Gourley. If you can connect me with a guest for I Was There Too, please email me at IWasThereToPod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Head to the I Was There Too episode page where you can see the YouTube clip of Natalie Portman auditioning for Leon the Professional as well as Gary Oldman's famous Bring Me Everyone line, and a clip where he takes his acting pills, which is my favorite. Also, I just thought about it. I bet you Danny Yello wasn't even brushing his teeth in his trailer. He's probably up to something real dirty. Okay, on that note, let's end this episode. You can leave a review on iTunes. The more stars, the better. It keeps the show up in the ratings and away from people's hatings. Well, on that rhyme is reason enough for me to stop this show right now and close it out and say see you next time. Goodbye. I don't have to tell you, I'm keeping costs down. I don't have to tell you, it's what's all in the town. I don't have to tell you, I'll just carry it around. Cause I can, but I won't if you will. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pop. Pop? Pop. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.